Okay, welcome to Get Rominger on the phone. Uh, exciting Sunday evening show for you. Uh, hopefully, we've got uh, hopefully we've got some uh, connectivity tonight. Uh, as you know, last time when I tried this, I wasn't getting the sound at first, but I think I've got everything figured out. All right, so I wanted to talk to you about the Second Amendment and gun control and the shootings we have going on. I don't think, as I've said before, that there is a clean and easy answer uh, to the shooting situation in the United States. Let's start with a couple of propositions. We have a Second Amendment and you have the right to keep and bear arms and that's an individual right. Uh, you can agree with that, you can disagree with that, but it doesn't matter what we think, the courts have said that's the case. Now, a couple commenters on Facebook have said things like, well, it's my God-given right. Um, lawyers and, and, and people who understand the law, and I'll put myself in the second category since I'm not a practicing attorney. Uh, most of your rights as found, say, in the Constitution are not rights, there are restrictions. So the Bill of Rights was just that, a set of restrictions on government. So whether you have a God-given right to own guns or not, or a God-given right to own property, those are just restrictions on what government can do with your property. So let me dial it in for a second. Under the Fifth Amendment, you have a right uh, of due process in the taking of your land for condemnation or use by the government with just compensation. So basically it says that they can't take your property without due process and, and compensation or fair compensation. Uh, without quoting the actual Fifth Amendment, the courts have said that basically means government can take your property anytime it wants, as long as it compensates you for it. So everything belonged to the king at one time and the king could take everything. So when the colonies broke off and they started to create their own government, they recognized the idea that the sovereigns, the colonies or what became the states, had the power to take property from people, just like the king did. But they controlled that by saying, yeah, king, it's still yours and you can still take it from me, but only with fair compensation and due process. Now, due process, as uh, anyone in the know will tell you, just means the right to be heard, not the right to win. So when it's written that way in the Constitution, it means the government can basically take your property at any time for any reason, as long as they compensate you for it. The Supreme Court in a series of decisions found that it doesn't have to have to go to a public benefit. A township can condemn your property on the theory that they want to help a developer build a resort there, which will help benefit the community. And so it doesn't have to be a power line or a bridge or a road. It can be pretty much anything the government can justify as necessary. It also means that if somebody were to ban an item or say that you could no longer have something or own something and you had to turn it in, they would have to compensate you for it. So until we get to the Second Amendment, law as it applies through the states and the United States, government can take your guns, but for the Second Amendment, where it says the right to bear and keep arms shall not be infringed. Um, then we have the Heller decision and, and another subsequent decision, which are the two modern decisions interpreting the Second Amendment as an individual right to own and keep guns. Those cases say that reasonable restrictions are allowed. Now, what those reasonable restrictions are, I think the Supreme Court said are for another day. And that leads us to the discussion we're having now. 
we have an outbreak of shootings in the United States. And you guys know how I feel about what about isms. And by, low, by the way, hello, Avery. I got your uh, message here. Just shout out. Uh, thank you for listening. I assume you can hear me or you would have told me otherwise. So back to where I'm at here. Okay. We have these shootings going on and I hate what about isms. So somebody says mass shooter shot up Texas. Somebody says, what about Chicago? Yeah. What about Chicago? What about Philadelphia? What about fill in the blank inner city neighborhood gangbangers and shootings? Okay. Those what about isms don't help solve the problem. Okay. I guess if a couple drug dealers or 50 drug dealers in Chicago shoot each other up, then we should just not analyze what's going on in the rest of America. Under that theory, uh, the cities, and as I'll hear on here a lot of times, democratically controlled cities are tearing themselves up. Now the studies show that whether a city's Republican controlled, uh, whether a city's Republican controlled or democratically controlled seems to make no difference in the actual crime rate because the crime has little to do with the control and more to do with inner city urban poverty, which none of our cities have dealt with. Uh, but we can come back to that. My point is the what aboutism of what goes on in these cities or black on black violence or black on white violence or white on black violence or white on white violence or however you want to parse this stuff out. It doesn't address the essential issue because both of those are gun crimes committed with weapons that were lawfully bought and then somehow got into either continuing lawful circulation like our last couple of shooters who literally bought the guns within a day or two of the shootings and killed people with them. Uh, or they were in somebody's trunk or closet or home and lawfully owned and carefully stowed away and then stolen by a bad guy and into a stream of co illegal commerce and underground. It doesn't really matter how the guns got there. Gun violence is the issue. Now, if we take all guns away, there will be no gun violence, say some. Others say, and Ted, good to hear you, brother. Haven't talked in a long time. I hope you are well. Um, People will say, okay, we're going to have this violence uh, even if you take all the guns away because, and I believe this, you haven't, you've made cocaine illegal for a long time, yet tons of cocaine flows in. Um, with shot spotters and advanced technology, et cetera, could the government route out a lot of guns? And if guns weren't le otherwise legal, would it be much easier to remove the illegal ones from circulation? Arguably, yes. But we can't do that because that would violate the Second Amendment until the Constitution's changed for any reason, which is why I always get a chuckle again, going back to that God-given Constitution. Um, if God handed down the Constitution and said, this shall be thy Constitution, he certainly wouldn't have put an amendment clause in it because as the all-knowing, omnipotent, and all-seeing um, man in the sky that he is, and I don't know why everybody's convinced he's a man, but that's another story for another day. Um, he certainly could have written the constitution perfectly from the first time it wouldn't need to be changed. Right. So in that regard, again, I don't think the constitution was handed down as a God given right, but again, until there's enough political will or the choice of America in general is to disarm, we will have the second amendment. You could agree with it or disagree with it, but you have to understand the playing field in which you live. So this crazy thought that we're just going to disarm America, throw it out the window. On the other hand, uh, my gun nut friends, uh, many who I've known for many, many years, and some who have very extreme views on guns, insist on this notion that there can be no regulation. 
So people will say waiting periods, uh, uh, lives are lost during waiting periods. I guess that if I move into a bad neighborhood and I go to buy a gun because I need to protect myself in the bad neighborhood I've just moved into, and I have a 14-day waiting period, and I get rob robbed, raped, or killed, there's a plausible, sensible argument that had I been able to carry that gun home on day one, hey, Diana, um, I would have been able to defend myself, protect myself, and I would not be injured or dead. Uh, how often that that waiting period impedes somebody is probably measurable, and they can probably find instances where some man, woman, or child died because of a waiting period. I can probably find you, I don't know, 20 people who wouldn't be dead right now because of a waiting period. Um, you know, if that guy had had to wait, school would have been out for summer a day later. So if he'd had to wait five days to get his guns, neither one of those guns would have been bought during the school year. That's not going to protect anybody in the future because any nut could then buy the gun during the school year. So it's not a, a, a true argument. But the point being is, and, and my thesis is, waiting periods overall allow for cooling off. So set aside your political belief for a second and just try to do an exercise with me in common sense. Have you ever gotten whipped up or angry or upset about something or irrational about something or just in a mind to do something and then over the course of time, in, instead of breaking up with your girlfriend or telling your boss he's a jack acre um, or punching a guy, you cooled down a little bit and you said he's still a jack acre, I'm still very upset, and you didn't follow through with your initial thought. Uh, there are a number of people who, like this guy who went and killed his surgeon, did it on the spur of the moment, right? He bought the gun and went and killed the guy. Is it possible that during the course of a waiting period, his abnormal behavior would have become knowable to somebody else who could have then flagged him? Uh, is it possible he would just calm down on his own or his back pain would have resolved and he'd have realized it? Or was he just a complete nut who eventually would have picked up the gun from the waiting period? Uh, and handed it over to and gone in and killed his doctor then. I, you can't say that it would prevent any one particular crime. Um, but just on a common sense plausibility argument, anybody who goes into these spur of the moment style shootings with a gun they just purchased, those wouldn't exist anymore because you couldn't go into a spur of the moment shooting. So what if we tried an experiment and said for the next five years, thou shall not, you know, I'll let God hand down a waiting period. Thou shall not pick up thy gun for 14 days from the date you initially fill out the paperwork on it. And at the end of that five years, we will have a discernible look at, do we have as many shootings that happen within days of the person picking up the gun as we did when there's no waiting period? Then we can do something interesting. We can say, okay, let's balance out the Second Amendment rights of individuals to get their guns with the need to get a gun quickly with a waiting period. And if the waiting periods makes no statistical difference, in other words, people are still doing mass shootings or killings within a couple of days of lawfully getting guns at the same rate, right? Um, well, then we've got is a situation where the restriction doesn't work and we should get rid of it. On the other hand, if the restriction shows a measurable decline in spur of the moment, first time shooters, we should keep the restriction and maybe even think about dialing it up a few more days 
uh, if, if that were seemed to be necessary based on the data. That, to me, is what we have to do. Now, part of the problem, part of the reason why we have such bad statistical information uh, about gun control and gun violence is that the federal government has refused to fund it for decades um, for reasons that make no sense. Uh, people on the right, the NRA particularly, have said, we don't want this studied, which would lead somebody on the left to conclude, maybe you guys already know what the result would be. I don't think that's fair. Um, I think that most of the time when we think we know something, it isn't right. And anecdotal evidence drives me crazy. I think about this election cycle. Um, a lot of like what Rudy Giuliani and the other charlatans wanted to bring into court as evidence of voter fraud was a lady said that she was at the polls and she heard somebody talking about suitcases of ballots. And therefore, you know, she was pretty sure that somebody was sneaking suitcases of ballots in. Then we find out that the containers that the ballots are kept in are called suitcases. And so maybe all she overheard, or as it turns out, all she overheard was somebody talking about something. But in her experience, in her anecdotal experience, she thought mistakenly she heard evidence of fraud, right? Well, it's the same thing with, with guns and gun safety and what would work or wouldn't work. Okay, I know a guy who defended himself with a gun. I know another guy who got hit by a stray bullet standing out on a dock, literally, um, fishing, when a bullet fired from several miles away uh, pierced his internal organs and caused him a lot of health problems over the years. Um, the person who was shooting that particular round actually turned himself in and, and said he was shooting through a backstop and into the woods and this sort of thing, and no charges were filed or anything. But you could say, oh, well, you know, these crazy, these crazy target shooters uh, have stray bullets flying all over the place because I know a guy that was hit, everybody in my hometown up in Western New York knows somebody who was hit by a stray bullet, right? Um, but that kind of anecdotal evidence, uh, a truth does not make. So while people wander around thinking that some stranger is going to kidnap their kids, the reality is that's such a rare event that a stranger would kidnap a child, you know, out of the playground or the house. It's usually a family member, a friend, or somebody known to the child um, who's kidnapping the kid, uh, or it's an older child who's a runaway who then gets kidnapped and human trafficked um, and detained. But nonetheless, it doesn't happen in the way that most parents are scared. So the other one I like to bring up in the gun control debates is swimming pools. Uh, last time I checked it, about 200 kids a year died in swimming pool accidents under the age of six. On that theory, uh, swimming pools are extremely dangerous and no responsible parent would ever allow a kid to go over to another person's house if dad owned a swimming pool. But if the dad owns a gun, some people are very worried about that. So, so we have to get rational with this. Uh, these cosmetic bans on weapons, uh, you know, it does whether it has a bump stock or it has a plastic pistol grip, none of that stuff really makes sense. Um, I frankly, again, would rather be shot um, by a young guy with one of these uh, uh, 223 type weapons than some old codger with his 308 uh, and, and, uh, and the bolt action on it. Um, not that I want to be shot, but if I had to pick my druthers. On the other hand, real carnage is occurring. And so again, I'll turn you back to the 1930s. Um, cars were killing people on the highways left and right. A lot of regulation came out of that. 
cars are highly regulated. You know your tailpipe can't extend past your bumper, right? You know your wheels are supposed to be inside the wheel wells. Um, you know that your windshield has to have a certain um, brake resistance to it. You know that your brakes have to be able to stop with a certain rate. And, and there, there are regulations on every little aspect of a car that have been built up over the years to make them safer. Uh, with guns, we have not really done much to make them safer. They are inherently dangerous instrumentalities, and they have to be used very carefully. Now, some of my friends, uh, and John, glad to see you on here. Uh, some of my friends have suggested, oh, well, all we need is better parenting. So if all we needed was better parenting, I guess we should get every male in the military, you know, mobilize a few hundred thousand of them and drop them into the cities and the rural areas where the fathers aren't or the bad dads are or the mothers aren't doing what they're supposed to. And we can create a civilian worker corps of uh, like the wax back in the day of, of female nurses who can be better moms and we'll send them all around the country to start parenting these kids for the next 18 years, plus any new ones that are born to bad parents. In other words, that's an insane thing to say, all we need is better parenting. Okay, if all we need is better parenting, then we've got about a 10 to 20 year problem on our hands, right? Because all the kids who have come through their early formative years, well, we can be late to fix them. And all the kids that are turning 18 right now, but are entering the main portion of young male crime spree age, got another 10 or 15 years of that left in them. Uh, this better parenting thing is a great political talking point, but it won't do butt kiss for solving the problem today, tomorrow, next week, or even next year. Uh, then let me tie this into the abortion debate. If we actually create a system which then allows another 500,000 or 700,000 or million babies to be born every year who would have been aborted, we know that those kids that are in abortion circumstances that are aborted quite often, a uh, high percentage of them would have been born into lower socioeconomic backgrounds uh, where violence and crime uh, often uh, permeate. So there's actually, if you read the book Freakonomics, a pretty good economics argument that abortion reduces crime. Um, again, it doesn't go to whether abortion is right or wrong. And this is one problem with people, by the way. Everybody wants to say, I'm not allowed to consider something or I can't talk about or I just reflexively repulse. Okay, if you believe abortion's murder and abortion reduces crime, the two things cannot exist um, or are not mutually exclusive. So it could still be wrong to abort people. And then you would say, I don't get the savings in the crime rate. Um, other people would say, well, abortions are perfectly okay. And I get the savings in the crime rate. And is there a savings in the crime rate? That's been postulated. It's been studied a couple different ways. Uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, why not regulate the ammunition? So Avery, <sighs> regulating ammunition is difficult. The reality is most of the ammunition that a target shooter would use uh, is going to do a pretty bad number on the human body. The reality is any projectile whipped up to speed is going to do a lot of damage. So yeah, is it possible? The other thing that's always interesting to me is, you know, we got all these people who think that there should be all these armed shooters responding to things, but ammunition wise, it comes to mind. Um, there's special ammunition that's designed to penetrate and kill a human being, but say not go through the average wall. 
Um, can you imagine uh, what kind of ammunition teachers should be carrying in school so that as they're pounding away at the shooter uh, with their weapons, it's not going into neighboring classrooms? Um, so ammunition choice is, is important, and there are certainly rounds that are designed to cause the most damage. Uh, interestingly, though, the rounds that might penetrate body armor are not the rounds that will cause the most damage to unprotected flesh. Uh, now, it's complicated because there's a lot of in, in intermediate and specialized rounds, and, and John's pointing so that people can make their own ammo, and the answer is right. Uh, I would suggest to you that most of our shooters, okay, let's talk about who most of our shooters are. Uh, if it's an inner city drug dealer shooting another inner city drug dealer in Chicago, um, I don't think they're using particularly sophisticated guns or ammunition. If it's a school shooter who just purchases new AR-15 and is using factory ammunition, again, you're not going to get a particularly sophisticated shooter who's making um, big choices about what ammo to use and, and specializing it. So, you know, like when I used to carry uh, Glock Model 2240 SW, uh, I used to have some of the rounds uh, as hollow points in the in the beginning of the magazine, and then after I shot through those, I had a few uh, more jacketed rounds. And I used to joke that my theory was the first couple rounds are to shoot the person, the last couple rounds are to penetrate his engine block in case. Uh, I haven't been able to stop him yet. Uh, so all joking aside, there is serious issues about how you regulate ammunition. Now, remember there's something called black talon, you know, oh, black talon. So one thing ammunition makers have learned is to try to avoid the scary names or the crazy names for ammunition because they've discovered that doesn't really help. By the way, if anybody really wants me to address anything in particular, you can hit up the chat. I do get the chat here on the uh, restream. And I also have the uh, phone number enabled, 717-906-5319. I think it's up on the screen, uh, 717-906-5319. So if you call in, I'll put you on my speakerphone here, and we'll try to uh, engage you on the air, if this is really the air, right? I'll try to engage you in the TCP IP packet torrent, um, which is huge these days. So where am I going with this? I think my only point is it's super complicated, but if you believe that you should die on the hill of no gun regulation, you will get more regulation ultimately. One of the things that business people will tell you, don't let the government regulate you, regulate yourself. Enter into an agreement with government, formally or informally, that we will regulate ourselves, therefore you need not regulate us doesn't always work because the people or organizations that are volunteering to regulate have a vested interest in their constituents, you know, like uh, the National Broker Dealers Association, um, things, things uh, that create regulatory bodies. But if you don't come up with a common sense set of gun regulations, you invite the public writ large to then create them. And they don't have the knowledge or the expertise. And I'm not going to pick on you, Avery, about ammunition, but that's a good example. What ammunition is actually scary versus what ammunition is not scary versus the names? What parts of an assault weapon, if there is such a thing, make it an actual assault weapon and more dangerous? Probably the flash suppressor and the pistol grip and the plastic stock and all these other bull 
doesn't make a hoot of difference, but the high capacity magazine ability might. So maybe nothing's an assault weapon in reality, but any weapon is capable of mass casualty if enough rounds can be put through it. Now, of course, some of my friends will point out on the internet, oh, you can practice changing magazines, you get really good at it, and it only takes a little while to do this. I'm glad that they are the world's best shooters and they have amazing abilities to shoot super fast and change magazines and move on. Uh, I find that you know, dropping a clip and putting a new clip in is not impossible, but it does slow you down unless you are highly trained and practiced. And under a high stress situation where you are engaged in a shooting activity involving live targets or people who might might not even be shooting back at you or throwing objects you or assaulting you, even the time to remove a magazine and place another magazine in may give somebody an opportunity to defend themselves. So this theory that, well, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator could doesn't make sense. You have to go with a kid who just bought a gun and then took it to the school two days later was probably not in his bedroom running drills with the firearm. Um, he might uh, he might have some uh, shooting skills from Fortnite or something, but other than that, uh, I doubt he's running these these hardcore drills, um, practicing with magazines, practicing rapid fire sequences. Um, so the capacity alone might be the issue that needs to be regulated. But to tie that back. You need to think long and hard about what hill you want to die on. So get common sense regulation. The smartest thing that could happen is Texas and the NRA could come together, kind of like Florida did with some of their red flag laws and some of their gun regulation that came out after this Parkland school shooting down there and, and roll out a common sense thing. The problem is the NRA has done what uh, uh, politicians sometimes do, particularly in dictatorships or strongman rule, they painted themselves into the corner because for years they've run the jackbooted thugs are coming for your guns uh, routine to the point where a lot of their followers um, and a lot of people in the 2A community, they can't see that anything, any regulation would be reasonable. Um, now they've got this magical thing where somehow machine guns can be regulated, um, but heaven forbid somebody regulate a semi-auto weapon um, or the capacity of the semi-auto weapon. But it's okay to regulate what I can do with my gun when I hunt ducks and geese. I can be limited to three shots. They're all okay with that, even though that technically infringes on my Second Amendment rights as well, right? Because when I'm out hunting ducks and geese, I should be allowed to carry along an AR-15 with 185 rounds in it. Why not? Under their theory. But for some reason, most of the gun guys I know are like, well, yeah, if, uh, if the Game Commission and the National Wildlife Foundation or whoever don't want you out there with five shots in your gun, I'm okay with that. Um, yeah, and in Pennsylvania, they've been okay with not being allowed to hunt with semi-autos for years and years and years. So I know I'm digressing, but my point is you've got to pick regulation you can live with. How you figure out what regulation that is, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is, what the right test. I think we have to test some things. I think we know that it's not working right now. Now let me turn tack for one second. Mental health. We need to spend real money on mental health. So this dumb bastard in Texas, the governor, Abbott, okay? And I'm gonna call him that because he comes out after the school shooting and sits there and his little mealy mouth says, oh, oh, 
it's a mental health crisis we're having here. Governor, you just cut $200 million out of the agency that hands out the mental health money in your state. What is your plan? You want to come out and blame it on mental health now, but you didn't think mental health was a crisis before. So do you believe mental health is the problem or are you just giving lip service to a point so you can avoid talking about gun regulation, which is what it really sounds like, right? So in other words, anybody who just cut hundreds of millions of dollars from mental health in his state, who then says, oh yeah, this gun stuff is a problem, it's a serious mental health problem that we need to address, is lying to you. Because he didn't think there was a mental health problem the day before the shooting, or a month before the shooting, or two years before the shooting. But when he's forced to confront the possibility that some of his constituency might want him to talk about gun control or gun issues, he suddenly decides that they have a serious mental health issue going on and forgets that he's the guy who just cut all the money which apparently wasn't enough because they currently have now a serious mental health issue. That's why I really hate him, uh, uh, the way he's acted down there. On the other hand, uh, the Democrats can be considered guilty of jumping on board. Uh, I, I do get sick and tired of the argument, though it's too soon. Uh, my reply to that is, okay, we won't talk about the school shooting in Texas, Let's just talk about the school shooting in Parkland and Sandy Hook, and we'll use those for the discussion. And we'll just say, we won't talk about the newest couple shootings because they're too soon. So let's just talk about the one that's almost 10 years old, which was done basically by a nutball with the same weapon that he stole from a family member or some such thing. Um, and why a family member? By the way, uh, you have to be careful in exercising your rights. You know, it's like my right to have sharp knives and cut my peppers up with them. But if I have a little kid, it's not my right to have sharp knives when my little kid can get to them. Well, if I have a mentally deranged or unstable or unwell child uh, and I leave guns in my house where they're accessible or reasonably accessible uh, to that person, am I not irresponsible? Am I not part of the problem? Am I not the person who should have waived my, uh, my gun rights? So, Ted, I, I, am, I ba am I back and forth? Of course I'm back and forth. And why am I back and forth? Because I don't know what the right solution to this is, but I think we all have to be back and forth on it. I think we all have to figure out where the common ground is. You know, there's a large number of our society that owns guns and loves owning guns and is not going to want to give up their guns. A large portion of our society doesn't understand why people own guns. And... I can encapsulate it because there was two Republicans. They both worked for the attorney general's office. They were both prosecuting a case I was involved in together. And we were talking and they were talking about how they felt about guns. And the one Republican attorney who's from Philadelphia was not a big gun guy. And the other Republican guy who's from Snyder County, Pennsylvania, was a big gun guy. And at the time, they had not had a gun homicide in Snyder County in something like fifth, since the 50s or something. I don't know if one's happened since then or not. But I think the most recent homicide they had at that time involved a baseball bat or some such thing. So as they were discussing it, the one guy said, you know, I can kind of see why you rural guys have no problem with guns. He's like, down where I live, all I'm doing is prosecuting gun crimes all day long where people are shooting each other all the time. He's like, but then you guys live in a county where everybody owns a gun and nobody's shooting anybody. And that's part of the divide in America. Some of us live in areas where everybody owns a gun and nobody's shooting anybody. Other people live in areas where only some of the people have the guns and a lot of the people that have the guns are the bad guys. Um, 
so it creates a, a mindset that could be different based on experience. Um, again, we can break that problem down. Some people will say, well, cities don't allow the, uh, you know, the good people to carry guns. There's plenty of cities around America where it's very easy to carry a gun. There's many cities around America where it's very hard to carry a gun, but any bad person that wants one gets one. So again, that's just the intractable problem. So we didn't learn anything tonight. We didn't solve any problems. All I want you to take from this conversation is anytime somebody tells you that there can never be any regulation on guns, they're wrong. Read the Heller decision. Now, there's some people, of course, quarrel with it, and they say that's not what the Constitution says. I, I disagree with the Supreme Court on a lot of things, but I'm stuck, right? That's our mechanism. In the United States, we've got a Congress, we've got a president, and then we've got a Supreme Court that tells us when something runs afoul of the Constitution. And in doing that, they tell us what the Constitution says. Um, no harsh punishment for anyone. So, so Mr. Brownwell, I have been to prison. I can tell you it's much harsher than you can imagine. There's lots of people and they're doing lots of time for lots of things. Um, the problem is harsh punishment actually doesn't fix much. It turns out that when you lock up lots of people, like in mass incarceration, the crime rates don't go down. And in fact, you do as much damage to the community um, as you solve. So the way I like to think about it is like this. If the war on drugs was successful and we went from locking up, say, in Pennsylvania in the 1980s, 5,000 people, okay, up to recently when we peaked at 50 some thousand, but crime really didn't decrease, you have to ask yourself a question. Is locking up all these folks having a huge bump on crime? And so, um, yeah, eye for eyes call retribution, John. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but that makes you Old Testament. And remember, Jesus said that he who is without blame should cast the first stone. So, John, if you're prepared, you're without blame, and you're the blameless guy that Jesus suggested probably wasn't a mortal man, hey, Jesus could have been wrong. Um, and, and I look at Jesus as a moral teacher, uh, uh, not the son of God. But I think he was saying to the religious leaders at that time, you know, you guys want to judge everybody, but the reality is everybody's flawed. Um, the other thing is you have to look at why people have done what they did. You have to look at their exact circumstance and you should try to have individualized sentencing. On the other hand, you've probably heard me say before, John, just so you know, there are a lot of scary people that shouldn't be let out. Um, but the other problem in our criminal justice system is our jails don't do anything to rehabilitate anybody. And so while eye for an eye and strong punishment is important, rehabilitation is extremely important and opportunity and education. And one thing that I can tell you guys that I learned while I was in jail, and I think this is a unique perspective, right? A lot of the guys there are poorly educated. They don't have basic educations, a lot of the guys there. Not everybody, but a lot. And they grew up in an environment where it was almost impossible for them to get a basic education. And education not only wasn't stressed in their family, they were lucky if they ever saw their family. I used to say some of these guys were raised like wolves. Um, I don't know what product you expect. And that's why I always say this idea of let's drop fathers in from the sky. 
um, you have broken communities and it's a multi-generational problem that's going to have to be fixed. Um, but just warehousing a guy, remember, John, 95% of all prisoners will go home in their lifetime at some point. So who goes home is important to community just as much as retribution. And retribution is one of the four major penal interests. Uh, so I don't want to discount it. It's important. Deterrence is important. But you have to be realistic about what you get back. So remember, numbers are important. And, and so did we get a huge reduction in violence for the mass incarceration? We got some reduction in violence. Did we get a huge reduction in crime? No, not at all. Uh, I advocate for two-tier track, identifying low-level offenders and nonviolent offenders and trying to move them out of incarceration and out of the penal system as quickly as possible and identifying seriously deviant and violent offenders, either sexually deviant violent offenders or just violent offenders, and identifying them and tracking them into longer periods or even permanent periods of incarceration. Um, so I'm gonna keep tonight's show short. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed what was an absolutely gorgeous weekend. Uh, we're gonna do this again Wednesday night, so I'll have some more topics prepared. I just feel like the gun topic is, is, is on top of us. I want to talk about election integrity and a little bit about, from my perspective as somebody who did a lot of litigation, um, how I feel about what was presented in the courts. You know, I have a good friend who texts and messages me a lot, probably doesn't listen to this show at all. Um, and he, you know, thinks that we need to... Uh, uh, be more serious about election integrity and things need to be looked into. He's a very smart man, so he's got me thinking. Um, but my inclination is, if you thought Trump won in 2016 and he sneaked in, he sneaked in in Pennsylvania and Michigan, then he just lost in a couple of those states the next time around. Why was it fraud the second time, but no one was clamoring for fraud the first time? Um, now, I know the Russian collusion delusion, to, to borrow from Kellyanne Conway, Kellyanne Conway. Uh, I love her, uh, liter her alliterations. Um, if you ever listen to her speak, I just listened to a Fox News interview with her. And, and she is the queen of uh, uh, alliteration. Uh, so <laughs> she's a Wonder Woman with words. I don't know what else to say about her. But I do want to touch on that because I want to kind of go into you know, sort of what I would say was lacking from a lot of these challenges and why they might have failed and what's going to be required. But understand that I'm going into it from the perspective of I need some more convincing. So between now and Wednesday, if you guys have some serious material that not, not one of these things that says there was terrible election fraud and it's a news alert from Rudy Giuliani, but if you have something that's in-depth that you want me to read, post it on my Facebook wall so we can all look at it and we can incorporate it in. Um, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm sure I'm going to get some links to some crazy, wacky websites. So no Alex Jones, no Rudy Giuliani, um, you know, and, and you don't think anything's reliable and there's nowhere to get your news, then I'm not sure where you get your news either. All right, guys, have a great night and I will see you uh, Sunday.